Revelers, it is October 21st, and I have much to say on this intro, so please bear with me before we get into the interview. First, I want to say that uh, I appreciate all of your faithful following, listening, sharing, reviews, star ratings, all that good stuff, especially during this extended sabbatical that I've just come back from. So, The interview that you're about to listen to was recorded in early September, and then I got busy getting ready to go out of town, and I was out of town for over two weeks, and then, you know how it is with a vacation that you get back and your life is crazy again, and then we all say, well, I need a vacation from my vacation. So I almost right away got back on the editing train for this episode, and um, just life got in the way and I've, I've had some physical things going on, which hopefully will be addressed in November. So anyway, suffice to say, I do apologize for the delay. I appreciate all of you and your patience. Now that said, this is a unique and sad in some respects interview, as well as it's really triggering. It's really angering because you're going to hear a story of a kid who was unjustly convicted of a crime and has been locked away ever since. And I'm not going to tell the whole story. I just want to give a little bit of warning that you're going to want to just shake the whole judicial system until all of the crap falls out and we can put it back together. That does not mean that this episode will offer any solutions, but please go, of course, to the show notes. There are some links and some resources. My guest is E.M. O'Brien, and E.M. does not want your pity, does not want your help, and is just the most down-to-earth, grounded, and grateful person that I think I've ever talked to, like all of the reasons why you might say to yourself uh, are reasons to be angry and rail against the system. EM says, no, don't do that. You know, work for change. Here's how you can work for change and just be kind to people. And here are, you know, people who need help more than we do. The number one sort of group of people that EM wants you to think about are the children that have someone like a parent incarcerated. And those are the, the links that are in the show notes. EM is just remarkable. And I think that you're going to be moved and touched. And I was, in fact, I uh, was crying a lot throughout and I had to make some tough decisions about editing. Like, do I cut out the times that I said that I was 
crying. So I do apologize about that. But you'll want to get some tissues maybe for this one. And it's a good time to remind you that BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com, is my sponsor. And uh, whew, mental health is such a challenge, not just nowadays, but particularly in the story you're about to hear. Ian points out how they get through the days and the weeks and the months. And in COVID time, over a year when they were separated from each other. And it's it's just rough. And I don't want it, that to happen to anybody. And I certainly don't want that to happen to anybody without access to a counselor, to a trained therapist. And so please, 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 no matter what you're going through, just please know that you're not alone. And I just really think you should check it out. If you're even curious, if there's any help that you can gain from it. So without further ado, please give all of your attention in your heart to Ian O'Brien's story. Hello and welcome to Revel Revel. I am Lauren Drabble and today I have someone I don't know with me. So we will get to find out all about them. And my guest is Ian O'Brien. Hi. So you have an interesting name (laughs) and you must get it mispronounced all the fucking time. Yes. So like you told me how to say it, it's like Liam without the L. So where did you get the name Iam? It's not my birth name. I'm non-binary. And when I transitioned, I changed my name to fit me and my dear friend, Cassie, actually helped me choose the name before she passed away in October, 2020. Um, She had a master's in poetry and she was living right, right next door to me. And she knew all about my being non-binary and she was really instrumental in my transition and she helped me choose the name. So I chose it partially to honor her legacy and to carry it with me every day as a way to honor her. And then also it just completely fit me and I dig the name. So I wanted something that was going to be easy for my friends and close people to say, uh, transitioning from my dead name, my original name. I wanted it to be something that wasn't completely different, something that wasn't going to be difficult for them to remember. And so my first name started with an E. So I wanted that to be something that I carried forward. I also wanted something that wasn't going to be just every boy's name out there. So I wanted something that was pretty original and different. And my friend Cassie is an amazing, creative, imaginative person. And it took her several weeks of me going back and forth with her. And she threw this one out there. And as soon as I read it, I knew it was the one. Well, it's kind of Irish too. Mm -hmm. I was thinking it was actually your birth name and it was just an interesting Irish name. So you are Irish though, right? Yes, I am Irish and my husband is also Irish. So that's another reason why I totally love the name. Well, as you can tell from my pale skin, I'm Irish too. (laughs) So I always start off with how we know each other and we don't. I got connected to you through Inetta and I always like to give her a shout out and her grow the love a shout out if I can. How did you meet Inetta? 
again, Cassie, <laughs> she was the one who introduced me to Anetta and the group Grow the Love. She insisted that I needed to join and that it would be really helpful for me with healing and confidence and a community of people. And I'm really grateful to her for that because Anetta is an amazing, amazing person, a resource, just awesome human being. The group is really wonderful and has been very instrumental in my healing and just as a confident person, you know, I'm non-binary. And when I joined the group, it was a group for women specifically. And actually Cassie was like, okay, just ignore that part. But since I joined and got to know Anetta, our, the group actually has been welcoming to everyone who identifies as female or non-binary. So like trans women, um, non-binary people, you know, cis women, very much more welcoming and so I think that that was pretty cool for Anetta to make the group a little more accepting and open. Well, that is cool. I know exactly what you mean because I invited a lot of people to that group and I was inviting a ton of women because it's a great support group for women. And then I don't know if you got to listen to my interview with Tori Andre Grimaldi, but he has transitioned from woman to man. And I was like, you know what? I don't know what to do about this. Do I invite you? Do I not invite you? And I had to ask Anetta and she's like, of course, it's totally fine. And I was like, okay, I just wanted to make sure everyone would be comfortable. And so yeah, she's awesome. The group is so positive. Sometimes like today, I will be avoiding social media at all costs. And that would be one of the places that I might actually be okay with. <laughs> yeah, I always know it's a welcome space. It's a safe space. A lot of the posts and links and videos and forms that they've had have been really helpful. And I have gained a lot of body confidence, self-confidence through a lot of their content. So I really like it. Well, I don't normally ask people their ages, but if I remember correctly, when I was reaching out through the Grow the Love group to see if anyone wanted to come and talk on Revel Revel. I think I specifically posted for the younger, the better, because I've never had anyone younger than Inetta. And I think she's 36 now on the pod. And so I was hoping to find someone, but of course not filtering out anyone uh, who was under 30 or, you know, just younger than Inetta. So um, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you? I'm 35. Okay. So we're just, we're, we're going to notch it down little by little. <laughs> But anyway, so what made you want to accept the invitation to talk here today? I think when Annetta tagged me, that kind of piqued my interest. And you said somebody with a interesting or unique life story. And my life and my life story has been um, definitely very unique. And my life is definitely uh, very different than a lot of people. So I felt like I had so many stories and a very unique set of circumstances to share. To the point that we don't even know where to begin. <laughs> so many things about my life that have been not typical. And there have been so many things that have occurred in my life that most people never experience. So, I mean, I could probably write a book and people tell me to, but we'll see. I know you wanted to specifically have a 
chance to focus on being the spouse of someone who's incarcerated. Yes. So let's start with how that relationship started, how all of that part of your life happened. So my husband's name is Sean and we actually met in grade school slash junior high. We grew up together in a very rural community, a very small mountain town where everyone knew each other. Our parents were both small business owners in the same area. And we actually went grade school, junior high together. We rode the same school bus. And I have a lot of memories of him in junior high in classes that we shared together, riding the bus home. He was a friend of mine. We had a lot of uh, friends in common. And in a rural town, it's a lot different than when you grow up, you know, in a major city or when you grow up with a lot of people, you know, there were only a handful of people in our town that were in our classes together for years and years and years. And so I, I knew him pretty well. And then um, we kind of lost touch in high school a little bit because we went to a, you know, a new high school that had just been newly built. And there were a lot more people there. There were a lot of people that had filtered from other elementary schools and junior highs in the area. So I didn't know him as much in high school. So we kind of lost touch a little bit. And then when he was uh, 16 years old and I was 16 years old, he was wrongfully convicted of a crime that he had no involvement with. And he was eventually direct filed into adult court and wrongfully convicted and sentenced to life in prison without parole plus 10 years at the age of 16 with no physical evidence tying him to the crime, zero DNA, fibers, fingerprints. His conviction is based solely on the testimony of one was an adult, one was almost an adult who actually admitted to being at the crime and basically pinpointed him and blamed the whole thing on him. And there was a whole fiasco at court of, you know, the, but there was a whole, um, time change two days after trial, the prosecution changed the time of the crime completely. And which would have, you know, changed everything about the case and everything that Sean's lawyer had been preparing for his alibi And the lawyer that Sean had at the time failed to object to the time change and did not take into account that this could have been a major problem. And it was, had he objected, it would have been probably a mistrial. He definitely would have been able to, you know, present Sean's alibi for the entire 24 hours had he prepared it, but he had not. And, you know, you have this innocent kid sitting in front of you that, you know, is innocent, you know, it's a very difficult thing, but he failed to object. And I think that's part of the reason that Sean was wrongfully convicted. It was also a very small town, you know, the lawyers up there, the prosecutors, the attorney general, the judge, all of them are extremely corrupt. This is widely known that in El Dorado County, where he was Uh, wrongfully convicted. There have been so many things that have happened up there just to sway everybody's mind that things are pretty dirty up there and they play dirty and they wrongfully convicted a child 
that they knew was innocent and sentenced him to life in prison without parole. Wow. Okay. So for me and for the listeners, can you name any town we may have heard of in this county? Like, where are we talking about? It's Placerville. El Dorado County encompasses like Placerville, El Dorado Hills, Cameron Park, that kind of area. But he was wrongfully convicted in the town of Placerville. Hmm. So I don't know much about the law, but the whole thing seems crazy. Were there no appeals? There were many, many appeals over the last 18 plus years. He was 16 years old. He is now 35, just like me. We have appealed many, many times and always it was rubber stamped by a judge, which means they didn't really look at anything. They just said, well, you know, this kid is uh, is convicted. I'm not going to change it. We got all the way to the Ninth Circuit Court, which is one step below the Supreme Court. And in 2015, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in Sean's favor based on ineffective assistance of counsel and granted him at the very least an evidentiary hearing Mm -hmm. stating that O'Brien could not have committed the crime based on the location of the crime and the time that it occurred because we have evidence that he was home that day. Uh, We have phone records proving that he was at home. He was a 16 year old kid using a landline to call his buddies. You know, things were a lot different back then. So, you know, times have really changed. He did not have a cell phone. He was using a landline from home. So that's pretty easy to prove. So the Ninth Circuit Court, that was a really good win for him. And then in 2017, we finally had the evidentiary hearing for him in Sacramento and proved his innocence in court again and showed everyone that we have the phone records. And not only that, we had one of the perpetrators who admitted to being at the crime who was in prison at the time. He came and admitted that the only reason he changed the time of the crime was because his lawyer told him to, because there was a discrepancy with the times and he needed to change the times, which was basically committing perjury. Yeah. And so there's a lot to it. There's, it's very complicated. There's so many pieces to this case and we know we've outlined it on our website pretty well, but to keep it like pretty basic, the judge just ignored all of that. They really didn't take any of this into account. The fact that the state no longer has any evidence against him, tying him to the crime. I mean, they never did, but they don't dispute our evidence either. Mm -hmm. So they basically say, yes, he is innocent. This judge saw our proof and saw our evidence and ignored it. And two judges ignored it. This judge, you know, basically just broke the law. And they denied his uh, evidentiary hearing. They they ruled against him. So that was pretty crazy because, I mean, what kind of judge in California and America breaks the rules and ignores evidence that you have an innocent person in front of you? Wow. Yeah. And I think people see things like memes and whatever about how the justice system is rigged and it's only for, you know, the rich the powerful things like that. And so if you were to try to appeal again, to go to the Supreme court, do you have any idea of how much time and money that would take? Um, we're 
not going to proceed to go to the Supreme Court because that's not the next logical step. Um, Mm. It would be going back to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals that ruled in his favor in the first place to show them that you granted this person an evidentiary hearing because of their ruling that is now in law. It's now a fact that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals said O'Brien could not have committed the crime. So Mm, the evidentiary hearing, that judge failed to take that into into an account, which you have to take that into account. That was the... The law that was the ruling by the Ninth Circuit Court. So we have to go back to the Ninth Circuit Court. We can't just skip ahead to the Supreme Court. And we do have the ability to do that, luckily, because of Sean's family and because of my family. Everybody is contributing to helping Sean. And we're very grateful to have that. Um, Sean's grandfather, Edwin, is really instrumental in helping us afford And my aunt, you know, helps with that also. So we do have a chance and we're very lucky and very grateful, but you're absolutely right. If we could not afford a lawyer, if we could not afford to go back, he would be waiting for his youth offender parole date, which is starting in probably 2026 with good time credits. And with everything that he's done, he is close to earning two associate's degrees He's gotten straight A's in college. He's a 4.0 GPA college student. He has worked on the men's advisory council for years and years. He's done all kinds of self-help programs inside of prison. He's never had a 115, which is a disciplinary action. So he's never been caught with a cell phone. He's never had a cell phone. He's never been in any games. He's never done any drugs. He's never gotten any fights. He's never done anything wrong. Basically he's been incarcerated wrongfully for over 18 years and never had any issues inside of prison. So all of that can afford us to be able to have his youth offender parole date, possibly 2025 at the earliest Hmm. because he was under 18 when he was sentenced. Wow. So You mentioned that you guys kind of fell apart from being friends in the bigger high school. So let's focus on your relationship. How did you reconnect and get married and all that stuff? So in the years in between, I had seen the newspaper articles. And at first, I was just completely shocked. And I knew him as this kid who did Boy Scouts and 4-H and was, you know, bullied just like I was. And, you know, we both grew up and we were very close and I knew him and he was just this dorky kid, just like me. And at first I believed it because you believe what is printed in the newspapers. You believe that the bad guys always go to jail and the good guys don't. And I had never in my life at the age of 16, 17, heard of wrongful conviction. I did not grow up in an America where people who are innocent can be put behind bars. I grew up being taught that you trust police officers, you trust law enforcement, that they're there to help you and they're there to protect you. And that's absolutely false. 
they're not there to protect us. In fact, there are so many laws and rules that show us that they're not there for our protection. So I was pretty devastated to find out that, you know, that had happened to my friend. And I thought, you know, that he had done something wrong. But then the more I read and the more I saw about his case, the more baffled and confused I was. And so I reached out to his mom after a few years, it just kind of sat and ate at me, I guess. And I never could get away from it. You know, I thought about him. I thought about him sitting there, you know, looking out his window, possibly in like juvenile hall or jail. And I knew what pain felt like. I knew what loneliness is. I knew that if anyone could use a friend, it would be him. And so I wrote to him a letter just, hey, do you remember me? You know, we grew up together, we went to junior high together, you know, how are you? And he wrote back and I was really surprised because I was not expecting him to write back or to even really remember me. But he did remember me and he wrote back and he was really happy to hear from me. So we started just with as friendly a friendly um, letter exchange as pen pals, you know, just as friends, nothing serious, you know, just basic life details, you know, like what I was doing at the time, my job or my pets or where I was living. And I was on my own, you know, already living in an apartment and working at a job. And so we just kind of wrote. And then over the years, you know, he would send me like drawings that he had done. He's a really good artist. And he was just kind of getting his start as an artist back then you know, I'm into art also. And so we, you know, kind of bonded and just, you know, as, as friends, and I actually got married when I was 23 to another person. And so it really wasn't on my radar to, you know, be with him um, in a romantic sense at all. And I had, you know, years of my life, you know, we were pen pals for, so many years before I even went to go visit him. So we started writing, maybe when we were 19 or so, maybe 18 or 19. And I didn't go visit him until I was at least 26 or 27. So we had been writing for, you know, eight or nine years, these letters, but over time, you know, we got closer and closer and our letters got longer and longer and more frequent. And I really wanted to go meet him. I really wanted to go sit with him and his mother, you know, agreed to take me along with her to go visit him. At the time, he was in Calipatria Prison, which, you know, I live in Sacramento. Calipatria Prison is um, on the border between California and Mexico. So it was a long, long ways away. And I went to go see him face to face for the first time in so long. And it was really shocking and really sad. And he came out and he was really happy to see us. And he gave me a big hug and he sat down at the table. And I remember thinking, I'm in love with this guy. Oh no, I have feelings for this guy. And I can't tell him because he has a life sentence. He's incarcerated. There's no way I have to just ignore them. And he felt the same way. And for the longest time, we just, you know, had to ignore it because how do you make a relationship work when somebody has a life sentence? And so neither of us really said anything. And then right after that visit, he was transferred closer to home a little bit. He was transferred to Corcoran State Prison, 
which is about three and a half to four hours drive um, away from where I live, which is, you know, a lot closer than getting on a plane and renting a car and driving out into the middle of the desert. So I felt like, okay, this is, you know, getting a little bit better. And I went to go visit him more frequently because he was closer. So at first I would go with his mom and his aunts and we would just, you know, hang out in the visiting room and eat food and talk and play board games. And I actually tried at that point still to date other people and to, you know, not fall in love with this guy because how can it possibly work? And, you know, it can't, it can't possibly be worth it. It can't possibly be good. Like I would see other people who were getting married in the visiting room and think, I will never do that. You know, that's so, so sad. And, you know, eventually I just couldn't deny my feelings anymore. I tried and tried to ignore them. I tried and tried to think of a way that I could move on with my life and not be with him. But eventually I just knew that I had to give it a shot with him and that I couldn't deny my feelings anymore. I had to follow my heart, even if I lost friends, even if I lost family members, even if people said I was absolutely crazy or said terrible things about me, which people have, but I knew that he's innocent. He's the sweetest guy I've ever met in my life. He's funny. You know, we have so much in common besides just growing up in a rural town, you know, we have so much in common that I I've never met anybody who fit me and matched me as well as him. And I didn't even know it really at the time. We just knew that we wanted to be together. And so I thought, you know what, what have I got to lose here? You know, if anything, it's just not going to work out. And so I gave it a shot And he, you know, of course he had told me already that he had feelings for me and I had told him I had feelings for him. And then one day we went to go visit him and we were saying goodbye and it was the end of the, you know, six hour visit and his aunt was right there and his mom was right there. And I couldn't leave without telling him I loved him. I just knew that I couldn't leave without saying I love you. And so I remember I gave him a hug and I said, I love you. And as we were hugging, he said it back, but he didn't think I had heard him. And so when we pulled away, he was like, I love you. And then his mom and his aunt heard it. And then they just looked over and just kind of rolled their eyes. And that was the first time that we had said, I love you in front of anybody or I love you, period. So that was kind of a big deal. And it was really scary. Um, You know, I didn't really know what it was going to be like. I was terrified. I was excited for this new journey. I was excited to finally follow my heart. I was hopeful and, you know, filled with butterflies, of course, but at the same time, I was scared. I didn't know what it was going to be like to be with somebody who is so far away. You know, I can't just call him up when I have a rough day. I can't text him at all. I can't call him at all. He can only call me. Um, you know, for 15 minutes at a time, what is it going to be like 
when we have to spend all of our time in a visiting room, you know, we can't just go to the movies and have a nice date or, you know, go out for dinner and, you know, he doesn't have a job. He doesn't have money, you know, that kind of thing. And I was so nervous, but it all was so much better than I could have thought. And the more we got to know each other and the more our relationship grew, it just got better and better. And I knew that I loved him and I knew that I needed to be with him. And he, you know, of course, loves me very, very deeply. And, you know, we really are happy together. We really fit. We really understand each other better than anyone has ever been able to understand us as human beings. And because he's innocent, my heart just fell apart for him. My heart just broke that here's this person that you can see in his eyes, you know, you can see the depth of his pain. You can see how, what a great guy he is. You know, you can see how honest and genuine and sweet he is in his eyes. And he's stuck inside prison and has been for over 18 years. And, but he's still incredibly happy. And his smile is so big and he's so positive and he's so strong that he helps me. He helps me figure out my stuff. You know, when I'm having a rough day, he's the one who's there to put it all back together. And so it's just clear to me that it's really meant to be. I have so many questions. So how long have you been married now? We have been married for four years. We were married August 2017, and we've been together as a couple for eight years. So when you say it's clear to you that you're meant to be together, can you explain that to the listeners? Sean is the best partner I've ever had in my entire life. You know, I was married to another person. I've been with other people and more than any friend I've ever had, more than any partner I've ever had, more than any family member I've ever had. He has shown me what healthy, you know, uh, functional love is supposed to look like. He has shown me that he respects my boundaries. He has understood me every step of the way, never judged me for anything he has made me feel like I can totally trust him and that he'll understand what I'm saying and who I am. And he has this love for me that shines so brightly. You know, I can see it on his face when I approach the gate and I can see him, he's just standing there beaming and I yearn for him and I long for him when I'm not with him. And when I am with him, everything feels right. And it feels like a part of my body lives away from me. You know, when I leave him at the end of our family visit, which is a 46 to 48 hour visit, when I have to say goodbye at the end of that, it feels like leaving a part of your body behind. I don't feel whole when I'm not with him. Um, Like, of course I'm a, you know, a full whole person, but I feel incomplete. 
And then when I am with him, those are the happiest hours that we ever have. That is, it means everything to us. It means more to me than money. It means more to me than anything ever. It's the most important part of my life. And it's absolutely the happiest I ever am is when I'm, when I'm with him and when we're doing something together. And how many of those family visits do you get a month or a year? So since we were married, we've had probably about 20 total, uh, 46 to 40 hour visits they are called family visits. And you only can have them, you know, if you're married or you're a first family member. And so since we were married, we started having those and you only get them at Corcoran where he's at. He only gets them every, I would say at the, at the low end, it would be every eight weeks. And at the high end, it would be every 12 weeks. Um, So it kind of varies, but when COVID hit in 2020, they shut down visiting completely. The prison in March 2020 completely shut down all visiting. So no family visits, no regular visits. So no one was able to visit their loved one inside any facility in California and uh, the whole country. Uh, So we had no family visits from February 28th, 2020 to June 16th, 2021. So we went... 16, 17 months without seeing each other at all. And that was, did they, go ahead. Did they give you more calls or internet time or something like that to make up for it? No, absolutely not. So in April, 2020, I got COVID April 1st mm-hmm. and I was super, super sick here at home by myself alone. And we had a few calls, but not many. And then luckily I recovered from that. In June, right on his birthday, June 2nd, 2020, he got COVID. And I had been hearing about a lot of inmates testing positive for COVID because they're crammed in so many, you know, together in confined spaces. You know, they can't social distance. They had no masks at the time. They were not provided any kind of care or any kind of, you know, sanitizer or anything. He tested positive for COVID and then his yard went on lockdown immediately. So I didn't even get to find out from him that he had tested positive. He had told me he was sick, but I had to call the prison and wait several days to find out that he had tested positive for COVID. And by then he had no phone calls. And he did not have home phone calls during that time for 65 days. Wow. So I knew that he was sick. I knew that he was positive for COVID and I had no, no idea if he was alive or dead. Uh, I didn't know if he was going to, you know, of course my worst fear was, okay, he's probably going to die. A lot of people were dying from COVID and a lot of inmates did. I heard a lot of really sad stories about husbands, fathers, you know, calling one day saying that they were sick and then, you know, finding out that that person had sadly passed away in prison from COVID. And I was terrified. Luckily he got phone calls back after that. The only reason they had put them on lockdown was because of COVID. So that's a logical thing, right? you got COVID. Let's take away all your phone calls. Mm -hmm. So they did not give us extra phone calls because of that. 
they didn't give him any kind of care when he had COVID, but luckily he pulled through and he's fine. He doesn't have any long-term problems or long-term damage from COVID. Um, he never had to go on a ventilator or go outside to a hospital. He was able to fight it off in his prison cell. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then starting in December, 2020, they gave us a video visit that was supposed to continue. We had one in December, 2020 for 30 minutes and one in February, 2021 uh, for 30 minutes. And then they took away video visits after that. So we had two like Zoom calls before we were able to like reconnect in person and get back together and see each other, which made it easier, but it was very emotional. We basically just cried on the camera the whole time. <laughs> it's really hard when you're seeing through the computer somebody that you love and that you need. And, you know, we just, we needed a hug. We just needed to hold each other for a moment and say, you know, everything's going to be okay. And we had no idea when we were going to get visits back. You know, we didn't know how long it was going to last there was no end in sight. There was no end date. So it wasn't like, if you could just hold on for X amount of months, we're going to reopen that visitation. It was like, well, it's closed indefinitely. COVID's still happening. We'll see. So luckily when vaccinations came, they vaccinated, they gave the opportunity to every incarcerated individual in California to get vaccinated. Sean got vaccinated. I got vaccinated. And luckily he was able to get visits back. And we had our first family visit post COVID in June, 2021. And then we had actually just last weekend, we had our second family visit post COVID. Wow. So Hmm. I have a really difficult question. Bring it. You know, you heard the theme about God, the universe, serendipity, whatever word that, you know, resonates with you with so many quote unquote bad, but definitely hard, definitely troubling things in his life and your life and your situation. How do you handle the thought of these things are happening and, you know, what's my place in it? What can I do about it? You know, karma, whatever, you know, tell us how you look at all this from your big picture. It's really easy to be angry. Yeah. Really easy to carry the pain and, you know, we feel pain every single day. You know, he wakes up as a 35 year old man on a concrete slab in a prison when he knows he is innocent and his life was taken from him when he was 16 years old. It would be very easy to be angry and in pain every day for both of us and for, you know, his family. It would be easy to be angry at the people who lied, you know, the attorney general, the prosecution, the people who were there and who did commit this crime and who lied to convict him. It would be easy to walk around hating these people and to just be so bitter. But we do believe in karma and we do believe in 
being kind and doing what is right above all else. You know, that was just kind of built into both of us very strongly. We both are very honest people, genuine people who don't feel right about cheating or lying or stealing our way to the top. I could never live with myself if I had lied to convict an innocent person and he's the same way. So rather than hold on to that bitterness or that anger or that resentment, it's so much, it's so much easier and so much better. It's a better quality of life just to let that go and to understand that these things did happen and to embrace them and accept them, you know, you kind of have to embrace the pain a little bit and learn to live with it. He's been really instrumental in helping me understand. And we've kind of, you know, woven this path together, learning together, growing together. You know, there are days when I really struggle with this feeling like, what is this all for? you know, where is our place? But he knows in his heart that someday he will be free. And that is an absolute, you know, and I know that too. And when he is, his life will be his again, and he will have control over it. And, but we don't live for that. We don't, we don't just sit here not living until that day. We're living now, you know, this is my life. This is our life. And we're trying to enjoy it the most that we possibly can. And so we do believe in in some sort of higher power. You know, we used to actually be Christians, both of us. Um, We were both brought up in the Christian church. Um, We both were, you know, taught the Bible. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. And I'm not saying that, you know, I, what I believe is the truth. I just, I have a hard time feeling like there is a plan to all of this, you know, and that like that there is something out there guiding everything that, you know, with COVID, the the suffering and the hate that we saw in 2020, you know, toward other people and the way that other people can be so selfish. I just don't know if I can any longer believe in a God, you know, that would allow that kind of thing to happen. And he feels the same way, but we haven't lost faith that we are doing what is right and that we are doing what we know in our hearts is right. And we're following our, our path that has been laid out in our hearts and we're being true to ourselves. And that's the, the basic thing that we, we like, we hold on to that, you know, that we're doing what is right toward us. We have really strong values, both of us, you know, neither one of us ever wants to break any rules in prison. You know, we absolutely 100% obey all of the rules in society and in prison. You know, I, 
have a very hard time, you know, lying or doing anything negative towards anyone. I want to be kind always and respectful towards everyone always. And he's the same way. So that's something that we just, it was built into us fundamentally. So, you know, a lot of people, as they're telling their stories, they focus on the random happy accidents that make life what it is and the joy and stuff. But in your case, can you find those? Do you see those? Do you try to revel in those or, or is it just too much and you can't? That's a tricky question. I think we believe in fate. Um, We believe, you know, that we have those experiences growing up together and those memories before prison, you know, those happy childhood, easy memories that we knew each other before all of this as like a foundation that definitely helps us. And those little happy accidents, like me happening to write him again, a letter, I think more so than happy accidents, it would just be, we believe in fate and we know that this is meant to be because it feels right. And it feels like a path that was set out for us. Mm. So I was asking you, you know, in our prep, are there support groups for folks like you, you know, with someone in prison and you were saying, no, not really. Um, can you expand more about that? Because I mean, there's a support group for everybody, right? You, you would think nowadays. So what is out there? What has been helpful? How do you just get through the day? There are technically, I guess, like Facebook groups for people who have a loved one who is incarcerated, but they're not necessarily like a personal support group. It's more of like, Hey, let's talk about what's happening right now. Are they on lockdown? You know, is there a food sale? That kind of thing. I've heard of like some little support groups for the wives of incarcerated people. Um, they're very few and far between. And when I do hear about them, they usually, you know, don't really last a long time or they're kind of, you know, non-inclusive and, I have a really hard time relating to people who have a loved one who is incarcerated that actually committed a crime because my husband didn't commit a crime. And so I'm not judging them. I just have a hard time relating to their story, I guess, because I've met so many visitors, other, other families, you know, visiting and almost none of them are wrongfully convicted. A very, very, very small percentage that we've ever met have been wrongfully convicted. And so it's difficult for me to relate to, let's say a woman who chose to marry somebody who is incarcerated because, um, they committed a crime. You know, I, didn't marry somebody who committed a crime and Sean didn't do anything to deserve to be there. He doesn't 
deserve to be there. He doesn't fit in there. And so I have a really hard time relating to those people, but there really isn't any good support networks for family members of the incarcerated. You know, people who are incarcerated and their families get a lot of stigma, stereotype, judgment, you know, a lot of Facebook groups get comments like, oh, well, if they didn't want to have, you know, this kind of life, they shouldn't have committed a crime, you know, just drown them all or like let them all die from COVID, you know, oh, they're getting COVID, good, we don't have to pay our taxes toward the prisons anymore, you know, that kind of negative judgment. So really, there is no support work network out there. Um, I don't have a lot of a terrible lot of support. I mean, a little bit. I think I mostly just rely on myself. I've kind of had to rely on myself most of my life and just figure out my own kind of way. And, you know, Sean and I are our own biggest supporters and our own support network. And so that's kind of how we get through the day is just kind of leaning on each other at certain times. It's definitely a struggle. That must be so rough. I mean, you can't even call him. You can't. Yeah, I cannot call him. (laughs) So it's definitely a struggle. I mean, I've been through injury, major injury, major illness, you know, COVID. I said my goodbyes to him. I, you know, didn't want to go to the hospital because I don't have health insurance. So I, you know, didn't think I was even going to make it. The job loss, uh, you know, loss of uh, loved ones, pets, you know, I've gone through so much in the past eight years and there was never a time that I was able to just, you know, call him and get support. And there've been times that I've gone through really horrible things when he's been on lockdown and hasn't been able to call. Um, my best friend passed away, Cassie in 2020, and he wasn't able to call for like a week and a half. And I was just grieving by myself, dealing with that here alone. So it's definitely rough. So resilience and community both come up on the podcast a lot. And it sounds like you have a lot of resilience, but not a lot of community. And yet those two things seem to go hand in hand. So um, how I just, I, I'm, my mind's blown. Like, how do you do it? I think that I don't really have another choice, but to continue, you know, I could just give up, but that would be death. So that's not an option. And so I just try my best every single day. And some days are better than other days. And if I have a super rough day, you know, and I get absolutely nothing done or I can't function, I forgive myself for that. And I accept that about myself. And then I just try to have a better day the following day. And we've created a lot of fail safes for ourselves. You know, I made a binder for the roughest days with photos of us together, you know, and happy cards that he's written to me with positive messages of love and just, you know, to be strong. And I have, um, 
that binder that I can pull out and look at on a really rough day. I have a video of him that was taken by Between the Lines, which is a little uh, group that went in there and did some videos of the incarcerated individuals that I can look at on a sad day. I, you know, it was my first video and my first voice recording that I have for him so that I can rely on that and pull that out for comfort. But I have a little rescue dog and, you know, he's a really, really big comfort to me. And it definitely helps with, you know, feeling lonely and feeling like sad and missing, you know, people were not meant to be alone. People were not meant to spend a great length of time, like years, you know, by themselves. And it's not like a natural thing. It's definitely built into our bodies. I mean, some people might be super happy to be alone. And if you are like, great, that's so good. I'm happy you're living your best life by yourself. But for me and for Sean, we definitely need each other. Like a physical need, a basic human need is to be together and just hug, you know, just, just reach out a hand and hold someone's hand, you know, just to be able to see each other more often is our basic human right. It's a basic human need. We feel our bodies suffering without each other, you know, especially during COVID when we went 16 or 17 months without any contact, it was torture. It was literal torture every single day especially for him to know that he can't be there for me and he can't help me in any way. There's nothing that he can do. All he can offer me is his words and his love and his phone calls. That's all he can give me. And I mean, there's not a lot I can do for him back. I can do more, a little bit more, but like, so we have learned to comfort each other through our words and to really embrace each other verbally with our words and just to hold on until the next family visit or hold on until the next positive thing and to just be able to ride it out until that date that we hope we get to see each other or we know we had something good coming and we know we have something good coming because we know that he eventually will come home and we have each other. And that's more than a lot of people even do have. And so we actually have learned to really be grateful for what we do have and to really hold on to that. I know it sounds corny. And for the longest time, whenever, any, whenever anybody said that to me, I always rolled my eyes and I was like, that is stupid. That is the stupidest thing ever, but it is absolutely true that if you are truly grateful for what you have every single day and you recognize the blessings in your life and the positive things that you do have and not focus on what you don't have, it absolutely helps you. It has helped me so much to remember that I am safe in my home. I have a home. I have a roof over my head that is all mine. I don't have to share with anyone. I'm not on on the streets. I see homeless people every single day and it's devastating. I would never want to be in that situation. And I'm so lucky that I've worked so hard to allow myself to be in this safe home. I have a vehicle and I have the ability to go to travel four hours 
to go to be with my loved one. A lot of people who have incarcerated loved ones can't afford to travel to go visit their loved one. They don't have a vehicle. They have to get a ride with someone else. We have a lawyer and we're very lucky to be able to have that lawyer and we have each other. And that's a love that we know is forever. And that's more than some people have. And that's some people look their entire lives for their partner, for their soulmate. And we absolutely believe that, you know, we are twin flames. And so just being grateful for those things gets you a lot of peace. You know, it's a very good feeling to know that we can travel to see each other. I have my health, you know, I don't have a lot of disabilities or, um, you know, physical ailments and I have food. I have enough to eat. I don't have to worry about where my next meal is coming from. You know, I don't have a lot. I don't have healthcare, but you know, I have basic things and that's, that's more than a lot of people have. We're very grateful for those basic things. And that's a big comfort. Well, not only are you grateful and resilient, but you're focused. I'm sitting here bawling and rubbing my eyes and you just keep on talking. (laughs) So you're amazing. I don't listen to these. So I'm kind of talking out my butt here a little bit, but people love the true crime podcasts and all that stuff. And they love picking apart a story about someone who was, you know, unjustly incarcerated and, and they go through like the whole minutia of the trial and what went wrong and all that stuff. And people love this stuff. And I'm like, is there any hope for maybe some podcast sort of version of Sean's story that will help him get exonerated? I haven't had anyone approach me about that. Um, I think because his case was not in the media, that is one reason that not a lot of people know about his case, which it's a double-edged sword because like the Amanda Knox case that was very much in the media, you know, she gets eaten alive still in the comment section. People are out there still believing somehow that she's guilty and, you you know, you can be proven innocent and released and people will still hold on to that. So I think that it's okay that no one is talking about it and it's okay that, you know, no one really knows about his case. There is a lot of hope. Our lawyer has gotten his case picked up by uh, the governor of California. Sean's case is on the governor's desk right now, waiting for commutation. He had his interview in December of 2020, which is the first step to getting commutation. There's not a lot they can do right now because of the unfortunate recall situation. But once that is done, he has a lot of people on his side. His lawyer, Heidi Rommel, uh, Scott Budnick, who is has a lot of sway um, in California, and hopefully, you know, they can get in touch with the governor more. I mean, they both have a regular access to the governor, um, and hopefully, Mr. Newsom can, you know, read his case and see that, you know, not only is Sean innocent factually, but he's worked very hard to show that he's worthy of commutation 
that he deserves commutation through his hard work and that he's prepared with a plan for outside life. He was accepted into Project Rebound through Sacramento State. That is a program for the formerly incarcerated that helps them, you know, pick their classes, afford their classes and get their BA uh, at Sacramento State. And he was accepted into their program. So, you know, he's two classes away from achieving two associate's degrees. So all of that hard work, you know, shows that he's not only like ready to come home, but he wants to continue his education when he comes home. And he's worked really hard to have this clean record, you know, to do really good things. He's helped other incarcerated individuals achieve their GED. He helped, he was a tutor who helped inmates study to earn their GED. He's worked on the Men's Advisory Council, which is a group of the incarcerated individuals who meet regularly with prison officials, the visiting um, officer, the lieutenant, the sergeant, and the captain, and the, what is it called, the warden, to help better things and make things better for everyone, the staff and the incarcerated population and the people who are coming to visit them. You know, so he has to drop an agenda for their meeting. He has to take minutes. He has to talk about things that are relevant and bring up issues that the incarcerated individuals have brought to his attention and then speak to the officials about this you know, situation, come up with a resolution, come up with a plan, and then work on actual achievable goals that they can do to make things better. And he has. Um, he's made a lot of progress in there. And getting things changed for the better and helping facilitate positive change. And that's a really big deal. So when he comes home, he really would like to advocate for wrongful conviction and for juvenile justice reform, because we would like this to never happen to anyone else ever again. That would be the best outcome is if no child is ever wrongfully convicted and sentenced ever again. Right. So to conclude then, you know, most of the podcasts have an element of what books, particularly fiction, because it's all about stories, people's life stories, whatever, but it can totally be nonfiction. I think we've got now more nonfiction books on my podcast list of books that we recommend um, than any other kind, but, you know, have there been anything that you can recommend to others that you know were helpful along your path that kept you sane, give you hope, just perked up your day, whatever it might be, you know, cause there's different points in your life, obviously. So anything that you want to pass on that we can post up in our uh, book section of books that you recommend. Sean and my favorite fiction book that we read over and over and we read it during COVID is called the dog stars. By, oh, I love that book. By Peter. You know it. I do actually. Yeah. He's um, he's like the Colorado laureate kind of writer. Yeah. He's Peter Heller's a big deal in the state. Wow. I mean that book I've seen, I've heard him speak on it too. And he's amazing. Wow. That book it deals with a like pandemic virus in the beginning of it that wipes out most of the population. And it was our favorite book way, way, way before COVID. 
And then during COVID, it really hit home. And, you know, because we had both gone through it and it was very scary. Lots of people were dying. And to us, the book is poetic, dark, um, you know, life, pain, you know, they go hand in hand, love and pain and life and suffering and hope. And, you know, just seeing these small little things that the book kind of focuses on these like, you know, little physical details. And that's kind of how we live our life is like focusing on, you know, a cup of hot tea or just seeing the constellations one night. So we absolutely love that book. I highly recommend it. Awesome. I do too. And the part where, you know, the main character, Hig, finally, you know, after years of suffering and being alone and losing his wife and going through this like apocalyptic situation, he finally finds this beautiful girl and they, you know, touch and are physical for the very first time, you know, that is very in tune to like what we experience when we go so long without each other and wait and wait and wait for each other. And then we're finally able to run to each other and just grab each other. And that kind of, you know, longing and aching and, you know, waiting and hoping and needing that. And then finally having it when that part came up, we were both very much in agreement that that was very accurate. So I assume that people do ask you this. Hopefully it's not all just negative jerky behavior from people who make comments, but I'm hoping there are people out there who say, well, what can we do? How can we help? You know, either the big picture of the, um, you know, the law, the case, or just personally, you know, what can we do to help you personally? Is there anything out there that since we're putting this out there in the world, hopefully someone will ask that, what, what do you want them to know? Wow. Be kind. Hmm. Don't judge people. When you hear about a case, don't automatically assume, you know, everything about that case. Cause you weren't there and you didn't read the case file and you weren't at the trial. Um, as far as Sean personally and myself, you know, just there's really not much sway that any one person has, you know, right now it's just kind of, we're hoping for commutation. We're hoping for the ninth circuit judges, you know, we're hoping for good things. You know, if you want more information on Sean's case or our life, you can visit our website, which is innocent at 16. And we'll have it in the show notes for sure. There is a link to the petition that I started years ago for the governor to release Sean. But I really don't know how much sway that has or how much that actually affects. I mean, his case is sitting on the governor's desk right now. And we have some really important people who are pushing that, you know, to Mr. Newsom and I guess if anyone has any connections for a podcast about Sean's case or to Mr. Newsom to say, Hey, maybe just take a look at this guy. But I think more than just freedom for Sean, it's just to be out there and doing good things and 
being kind to each other and reaching out to each other. That's it. And don't take people for granted that you actually can touch anytime you want to. But, um, you know, as far as like donations on the website, do you have like a link for donations or anything? Absolutely not. I don't want anyone to feel inclined to donate any money. If you want to spend some money, go buy somebody that you like or love flowers or. Oh, but I mean, like little things like uh, gas gift cards, just so you can go and see them. No, (laughs) no. And then I don't remember what it's called, but, you know, they have an account for things, you know, in prison so that they can have perks basically. And, and some basic just necessities. Is there a way to put money in his account? No, I just, I don't want anyone to hear this and think I want to get money from people. That's not it at all. And I wouldn't feel right about accepting help because I have a job and I am, when I see other families struggle way more than us financially, you know, not having a car, having children who need a lot of help physically, financially, you know, elderly people who have trouble visiting their loved ones, those babies and those elderly and those people who struggle way more than us deserve the financial support far more than we do. And please go give to them. Please go donate to those babies who are missing their daddies or their moms. And please go give some financial support to somebody who's really struggling. Please pass it on to them. Well, that's super commendable. So I can't, um, I can't be moved more. I have met families along the way who definitely deserve a hand, a help, helping hand and children whose parents are incarcerated. My heart goes out to every single one of them. There was a little girl who during COVID was at our protests. We went to the protest outside the prison. We held up signs and this little girl said, let my daddy come home. And I would rather have every child out there know that my heart is with them and that they deserve the help and they deserve to have their parents hold them and hug them. You know, that's my heart goes out to them and I would rather have the energy and the help go toward those people. Right. Well, gosh, there's just no good way to end this. (laughs) Um, We're both crying. I just think that if, if anyone hears this, you know, just follow your heart. And it meant a lot to me to hear those words. That's what really helped me make the decision to be with Sean and to be married to him, you know, despite anyone's negative thoughts of you, anyone's narrative of you, besides anyone's, you know, negative comments that they want to say about you, follow your heart and do what you know is right in your heart for you and always be true to yourself. Even if you're standing alone, stand up for what you believe in and stand for what you know is right. Always. I think that that's probably the best the best way. And I just want to say thank you to you and to, uh, Inetta. And was it Cassie or Cassidy? Cassie. Cassie, who brought you, uh, to Inetta, which therefore brought you to me and us. So 
thank you for your time and your vulnerability and um, telling your story. And um, I'm, sh- I-, I assume Sean knows this is happening. Yes. Have you told him? Yes. Yeah. Well, I don't know if he'll ever get to hear it, but hi, Sean. <laughs> Hopefully one day he'll come home and we'll do another zoom and I'll get to say hi, Sean, like at least this way visually. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me today and giving me this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Well, besides making me cry, you did great. (laughs) I know it was kind of a challenge at the beginning to think about what we wanted to narrow it down to and, you know, get everything right. But I just really appreciate you uh, taking the time and and giving us a a voice because it's so often people like us don't get heard. Well, yeah. And I hate that. Obviously, it's sort of my goal that People have interesting life stories. Some are shitty interesting, but they're still interesting and they deserve to be told. And, um, you know, we don't need to hear any more celebrities life stories. We need to hear real people's. (laughs) So thank you so much. Okay, revelers, hopefully I'll be back on the normal track and I will have another episode coming out um, probably the end of the first week of November, but the latest the second week of November. And that will be local Colorado author Karen Ovenen. So as always, I thank you for your likes, your shares, your following, your subscribing. There's too dang many words for all this podcast stuff, but you know what I mean. So Please, 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 if you haven't shared it, if you haven't liked or reviewed or in some way promoted this podcast, please do so. It would mean a lot to me. And if there's any way sharing this story can help fix the justice system, help get Sean O'Brien out and his life back to be his, then I hope you do so. And particularly if you are in California, which I know a lot of my listeners are, please go to your representatives, go to your governor and tell them about this gross injustice. So thank you for listening, Revelers. You're the best.